This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And that includes everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments and investigations into the causes of mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way endeavoring to better inform the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome again to this latest edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded for initial airing on America's Web Radio, Wednesday evening, July the 13th, 2016. Hope that you've been feeling well lately. Of course, um, there are a lot of things going on in the world negatively affecting a lot of people's mental health in general. You know, I'm speaking of the latest police shootings and then the massacre of police in response to that. Certainly a great deal of anger, tension, frustration, grief, and sadness going on in general. Um, So can't very well go on with a mental health-related show and not at least comment on that. Um, All we can do is hope that reforms are made in terms of how uh, police handle themselves in situations and and also that they can protect themselves against retaliation for when things don't go right and people want to lash out. Uh, But regardless, uh, I'm not going to spend more time than that talking about it. Uh, There have been some very important, I think, mental health-related items in the news lately, not the least of which is this first one, which I regret also is far from uplifting. In fact, again, very, very sad. But 2014 saw, on average, 20 veteran suicides a day. Again, that's that's already two-year-old data, 20 veterans a day took their own lives two years ago. Uh, Certainly an extremely grim picture of our military and our veterans' mental health. The Veterans Administration gives their first precise count of 7,403 former service members who took their own lives. The average of 20 veterans a day who committed suicide in 2014, a trend that reflects record high rates among young men fresh out of the military and growing numbers of women taking their lives. According to this, the first actual count of suicides among former service members. The Department of Veterans Affairs previously had only estimated suicides, saying in 2010, 
there was an average of 22 a day. The 2014 data released on uh, Thursday, July 7th, are based on a precise tabulation of the 7,403 deaths. <clears throat> David Shulkin, the VA Undersecretary for Health, noted the slight decline from the 2010 estimate, but said it's still far too high. Well, of course. The uh, question is what's going to be done to bring it down? The 2014 count is the first slice of a massive examination of 55 million veteran death records dating back to 1979. Shulkin said that a final report due in several weeks will detail more suicide trends. The VA found the worst suicide pattern among male veterans ages 18 to 29, very young male veterans obviously, their suicide rate was 86 per 100,000 people, nearly four times the rate among active duty service members last year. Contrast that, folks, with this. The overall United States suicide rate is 13 per 100,000 people. That statistic comes to us from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. <clears throat> So let me tell you that again. The overall United States suicide rate, 13 per 100,000. Among veterans ages 18 to 29, 86 per 100,000. Why so much higher? Now if we look at suicide rate among young female veterans, uh, same age group of females, in other words 18 to 29 years old, that was 33 per 100,000, more than double the overall U.S. rate, but not more than quadruple, like it is with the men. Shulkin said the suicide rate among all female veterans was more than double that of women who didn't serve in the military. And he said it is difficult to understand why that is happening. It is one of the things I think will become a central research question for us. Well, I certainly hope so. He said more research is needed to determine whether women who served closer to combat or experienced sexual trauma in the military put them at greater risk of taking their own lives. He said the VA has taken several aggressive steps to deal with high suicide rates. He characterized the steps as aggressive. They include adding staff to the crisis hotline for veterans identifying veterans at high risk, increasing mental health counselors, and expanding mental health therapy via telephone. Well, I'm sorry, but I definitely think that's not aggressive enough. First of all, adding staff to the crisis hotline for veterans, that's great. If they're calling the line, uh, perhaps the reason they added staff is because Call volume is high, and certainly don't want veterans who are trying to reach someone to have to wait. Uh, so that does sound like a good move, but again, that's assuming that veterans are calling and actually trying to reach out and use that phone number. Identifying veterans at high risk. That is going to be 
the best way to approach this problem. Uh, <clears throat> right from the beginning, screen people who join the military for mental health problems, identify those who are at risk from the get-go, make sure they get the help that they need, periodically reassess everyone in the military to make sure they're doing well mental health-wise. That's the way to prevent this alarmingly high rate of suicides. Increasing mental health counselors, again, very, very good idea, very necessary, very appropriate. And expanding mental health therapy via telephone. Well, all right, um, I don't know what kind of utilization there is of that service, if there is good utilization of it, but there aren't enough counselors available to serve the demand, then great. Adding more uh, therapists who can conduct therapy by phone is a useful thing. If veterans aren't using it, not sure how that's going to help. <clears throat> but to me, the biggest thing of all, apart from what I said, proactively identifying people in the military who are at risk and following them throughout their career, making sure they, hope they, get, they get the help they need. And then also, a close second, increasing the number of mental health counselors available. What the article doesn't mention is the persistent stigma in the military about admitting to oneself and therefore one's uh, <clears throat> superiors and uh, inferiors and fellow soldiers, airmen, marines, or seamen, that you have a problem and need help for it. There's still this very macho culture in the military, uh, which is still predominantly men, obviously, and this is a big obstacle toward those in our military and veterans also from getting the help that they need. There are still, still too many reasons why people in the military worry that admitting to this type of problem and getting help for it will somehow lower their esteem in terms of their fellow service members <clears throat> and their superiors, that it will somehow damage their career, prevent promotions, etc. Um, until that is aggressively handled in such a way uh, that all in the military understand that will not be the case, then there are still going to be too many people in the military who need this type of help that will simply choose not to reach out for it because they're concerned of the impact it will have on their career. And really, I think that, along with screening for mental health issues upon entry into the military, upon <clears throat> discharge or retirement from the military, uh, pre- and post-deployment, these are the things that the military can do to get the suicide rate down. And just to give you something to think about, we are often encouraged to support our troops, which of course we should, but in my way of thinking, given the experience I've had working with those in the military when I used to practice in Columbus, Georgia, which is right near Fort Benning, one of the largest military installations uh, we have, support their families while the soldiers and 
other people in the services are deployed. Uh, by doing that, I promise you, you're making a huge benefit mental health-wise for those who are deployed and can't be at home with their families and have to deal with the stress of what they're trying to accomplish without their help. Um, so <clears throat> by supporting the families who uh, have their service member deployed overseas, I promise you, you're making a big improvement in the mental health and well-being of our service members. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break at this point. When we come back, we'll have other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott, and we'll be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, with all of this mental health-related news. And what we're talking about next on tonight's show is of direct relevance to those with bipolar disorder, but uh, perhaps other chronic psychiatric diseases as well. Uh, so if you suffer from bipolar disorder or someone 
close to you does. This is definitely something very, very important that you or they should pay attention to. Um, we already know that there are high rates of obesity and resultant serious health problems in patients with bipolar disorder. A new study sheds some light on uh, ways in which people with this type of mood disorder may be uniquely vulnerable to obesity and the other health problems that go along with it. It turns out there is a link between stress hormones and obesity in bipolar disorder patients who suffer from depression. That's one of the phases of bipolar disorder, which used to be called manic depressive illness. Low levels of the stress hormone cortisol are linked to obesity, high levels of fat in the blood, and metabolic syndrome. Among patients with recurrent depressions or bipolar disorder, this from an article published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. <clears throat> now you might think that I was going to say, you might have thought rather that I was going to say it's higher levels of stress hormones, not lower. Uh, we'll get into the details of that shortly. But <clears throat> the results of the study provide clues to better understand the high prevalence of cardiovascular diseases in people with recurrent depressions or bipolar disorder. The results may in the future contribute to better preventative treatments of cardiovascular diseases in these disorders. Bipolar disorder and recurrent depressions are lifelong diseases that are associated with a 10 to 15 year reduction in life expectancy. A strong contributing factor to the shortened life expectancy is the high prevalence of cardiovascular diseases. Stress, low physical activity, and high energy intake are lifestyle factors linked to increased risk of metabolic and cardiovascular diseases. By high energy intake, that's just a more technical way of eating too much. <clears throat> now, one of the most important stress systems in the body is called the HPA axis. Uh, those three letters stand for the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the adrenal. Those are three major, very important glands in the body that control a lot of bodily functions. You're, you might be somewhat more familiar with your thyroid gland, which is really sort of a master gland function, uh, controls all the functions in the body, but ultimately even that um, is subject to effects from those other uh, three, especially the hypothalamus and the pituitary. This system regulates the production and levels of the vital stress hormone cortisol. Cortisol is also important for metabolism. High cortisol levels over a long period of time are considered to contribute to the accumulation of fat. Stress normally leads to HPA axis overactivity, which in turn leads to increased 
levels of cortisol. If the additional stress is prolonged, it may lead to underactivity in the stress system with low levels of cortisol as a result. <clears throat> Just to give you a little bit of explanation of how it works, environmental stress triggers the hypothalamus to secrete in response to that stress something called corticotropin releasing factor and then that in turn affects the pituitary the pituitary is then going to release uh, corticotropin releasing hormone and that goes to the adrenal glands which is then stimulated to produce cortisol and <clears throat> what the article is saying is that while this initially increases the levels of cortisol if the stress is prolonged or chronic, then you basically burn the system out. There's underactivity and not enough cortisol. So in people with recurrent depression and bipolar disorder, it has previously been shown that metabolic risk factors for cardiovascular diseases are common and that disturbances in the stress regulation system often occur. Now, I definitely want to strongly emphasize that if you think that anybody with depression or bipolar disorder can counteract this by taking supplements that purportedly increase the levels of cortisol or alleviate the effect of not having enough cortisol, please don't waste your money on those supplements and don't do anything or take anything that might be dangerous. Uh, I promise you those things don't work. You cannot take exogenous cortisol and hope to restore the imbalances in this system. And you're most likely just going to bring about even further complications than you already have. <clears throat> now, in order to study the link between cortisol level and metabolic diseases, 245 patients with bipolar disorder or recurrent depressions were analyzed together with 258 people in a control group. Researchers measured cortisol levels in participants after they had taken a so-called dexamethasone suppression test, which is used to discover early deviations in the stress system. What the researchers now can show is that patients with bipolar disorder or recurrent depressions with low levels of cortisol to a larger extent than other patients suffer from obesity, 34% in comparison to 11% among the non-affected controls, dyslipidemia, which means high levels of fat in the blood, cholesterol, triglycerides, 42%, compared to 18% among other unaffected controls, <clears throat> and metabolic syndrome, uh, which is a complex of uh, high fat levels in the blood, high blood pressure, and uh, other effects of uh, obesity, high, um, <clears throat> high lipids, high blood sugar, being overweight, and high blood pressure. Now, on the other hand, 
they did not find any correlation between cortisol levels and high blood sugar levels or high blood pressure, even though they found that there were higher rates of metabolic syndrome. So the link is not directly clear, but what is clear is that the results show that this abnormality in cortisol regulation is linked to worsened health in people with bipolar disorder or recurrent depressions. Yes, they need more studies to tease out these associations, but the bottom line is people with any type of chronic mood disorder, whether it's bipolar, where you have highs and lows in terms of moods, or just unipolar depression, where there's no manias or hypomanias, it's just recurrent depression, uh, patients need to pay better attention to their health, focus on eating a good, healthy diet, um, avoiding simple carbohydrates and fats, focusing on lean meats and fresh fruits and vegetables, and getting plenty of exercise. <clears throat> uh, the Mediterranean diet is a good diet to follow. The mind diet is a good diet to follow. Uh, the only caution I would say there is it is not good for people with chronic mood disorders to have alcohol because alcohol is a depressant, um, and that will aggravate the depression in these patients. So other than the red wine recommended in those diets, I do recommend following them. And uh, But again, it's, it's a two-pronged approach. Eating well and getting enough physical activity will be essential. And then in that case, that's the best way to attack this problem of cortisol dysregulation. Again, avoid supplements. They don't help. They're all hype and no help. It'll cost you a lot of money, and they may actually aggravate the problem instead of helping it. <laughs> Next up on psychiatry today, there was this article about how prenatal exposure to acetaminophen, that's the main ingredient in Tylenol, may increase autism spectrum and hyperactivity symptoms in children. Now, naturally, this would cause a great deal of alarm. Uh, <clears throat> parents with children on the autism spectrum are already very upset because not enough is known as to what causes autism spectrum disorders. And while more is known about how to alleviate their effects, not enough as of yet is known and uh, parents feel confused, upset, angry, and grieved as to what's wrong with their children, how they got that way, and what they can do to help. So can you imagine the effect of this news that Tylenol, of all things, which is so commonly taken by so many people in the population each and every day, and commonly prescribed and thought to be safe as far as giving to pregnant women, that that would increase autism spectrum disorders and hyperactivity, one of the most commonly ingested over-the-counter medications there is. 
surely that can't be true. Well, fortunately, there's a lot more than meets the eye to this study. Uh, but we're going to have to take another commercial break here, tell you more about that when we come back, and other mental health-related news as well. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And now we're talking about how in the world could a researcher report that Tylenol, of all things, taken by pregnant women could increase the risk of children being born with autism spectrum and hyperactivity symptoms. Well, this new study found that acetaminophen, the active ingredient that is Tylenol, used extensively during pregnancy, has a strong association with autism spectrum symptoms in boys and for both genders in relation to attention-related and hyperactivity symptoms. The findings were published uh, last week in the International Journal of Epidemiology, and they said it was the first study of its kind 
to report an independent association between the use of this drug in pregnancy and autism spectrum symptoms in children. Okay, so that's an important point. The first time this finding has been reported, and then also the first study to report different effects on boys and girls. Comparing persistently to non-exposed children, the study has found an increase of 30% in the risk of detriment to some attention functions and an increase of two clinical symptoms of autism spectrum symptoms in boys. Researchers in Spain recruited 2,644 mother-child pairs in a birth cohort study during pregnancy. 88% were evaluated when the child was one year old, and 79.9% were evaluated when they were five years old. Mothers were asked about their use of acetaminophen during pregnancy, and the frequency of use was classified as never, sporadic, or persistent. <clears throat> exact doses couldn't be noted because, after all, mothers are not able to recall them exactly. Now, 43% of the children evaluated at age 1 and 41% assessed at age 5 were exposed to any Tylenol at some point during the first 32 weeks of pregnancy. When assessed at age 5, <clears throat> exposed children were at higher risk of hyperactivity or impulsivity symptoms. Persistently exposed children, in particular, showed poor performance on a computerized test measuring inattention, impulsivity, and visual speed processing. Boys also showed more autism spectrum symptoms when persistently exposed to acetaminophen. Although measured symptoms and not diagnoses, an increase in the number of symptoms that a child has can affect him or her, even if they're not severe enough to warrant a clinical diagnosis of a neurodevelopmental disorder. Well, if that sounds like vague hedging to you, then I agree. They're saying, well, you know, we found symptoms. It may not actually reach the threshold of a diagnosable disorder, but even if it is only symptoms, that can still have a negative effect. Now, acetaminophen could be harmful to neurodevelopment for several reasons. First of all, it relieves pain by acting on cannabinoid receptors in the brain. Since these receptors normally help determine how brain cells mature and connect with one another, acetaminophen could alter these important processes. It can also affect the development of the immune system or be directly toxic to some fetuses that may not have the same capacity as an adult to metabolize this drug or by creating oxidative stress 
all that according to the main author of the study. Now, there could be also an explanation for why boys are more likely to have autism spectrum symptoms. The male brain may be more vulnerable to harmful influences during early life. The differing gender results suggest that androgenic endocrine disruption, uh, the main androgen being testosterone, of course, <clears throat> could be uh, to which male brains are more sensitive to this disruption may explain the association. Well, really, I think that's the obvious uh, speculative answer because, of course, that's the main difference between boys and girls. This study concluded that the widespread exposure of infants to acetaminophen or the main ingredient in Tylenol in utero could increase the number of children with ADHD or autism spectrum symptoms. However, they stressed further studies should be conducted with more precise dosage measurements and that the risks versus benefits of acetaminophen use during pregnancy and early life should be assessed before treatment recommendations are made. Well, I've already been seeing reports since this study came out where other scientists are saying, wait a second, this is still an association. There's no hard proof of uh, this effect of the main ingredient in Tylenol. And until more specific research is done, they think this is too broad a conclusion to make. Uh, so what are pregnant women and women who plan to or expect to get pregnant supposed to do? Should they just not take any Tylenol at all? If they suffer from pain or have a fever, are they just not supposed to take anything? Well, I think personally uh, that would be too drastic a measure to take. Again, this is one study. Uh, it's not hard proof until this data is replicated in a much broader and more specific fashion. Uh, I don't think you can take this conclusion as uh, being hard proof that Tylenol increases the risk of autism spectrum disorder or hyperactivity. So then what do you do with information like this? Well, I think just basically a common sense approach. A woman is pregnant. Of course, um, she should only take what is absolutely necessary. And therefore, when it comes to Tylenol, um, if there is pain that becomes unbearable, go ahead and take it. Take the least amount. Uh, the least frequency in order to alleviate pain or fever, whatever the case may be. And that goes for anything. Um, but, you know, the reality is pregnant women have to take many medications to treat significant medical problems that they have that still need to be treated, although they are pregnant. And by the way, that includes mood disorders and anxiety disorders as regular and long-time listeners to this podcast will know, 
I've always been an advocate that <clears throat> regardless of the known or unknown risks of taking psychiatric medications during pregnancy, uh, we have to err on the side of maintaining the pregnant woman's mental health, and uh, as is the case with Tylenol physical health, in order to bring about the, the most positive milieu for the developing fetus. And uh, so, again, I would not put, push the alarm button and completely avoid Tylenol based on this one study, but like anything else, use caution, use the least amount for the shortest time to limit the fetus's exposure to anything, no matter what it is. Now, uh, next up on psychiatry today, an interesting study looking at Alzheimer's disease and looking at the plaque-forming proteins in that disease. Some researchers at the Salk Institute have found that cannabinoids help to remove these plaque-forming proteins from brain cells in Alzheimer's patients. Now, for, for better or for worse, getting rid of amyloid plaque in the brain has been a major focus of those who are researching how to treat Alzheimer's disease or even to prevent it. Now, why do I say for better or for worse when amyloid plaque is one of the hallmarks of the diseases? How can that not be a good thing? Well, the answer is we just don't really know enough about it. Um, is the amyloid plaque the cause of the memory loss in Alzheimer's disease? Is it some sort of other unrelated sign of the disorder but not directly responsible for the memory loss? Uh, the fact is we don't know enough to know for a fact that, okay, fine, let's say theoretically you could clear out all the amyloid plaque. Would that in fact help? Um, up until now, scientists have not been able to determine that. Um, it makes common sense if you look at the brain of uh, an Alzheimer's patient on autopsy, you see all this amyloid plaque. It's not normally there. You would think if you get rid of it in a living patient that that, that should help, uh, but we don't know. So while there is justifiable excitement about this research, uh, we're still not sure how this will affect patients. But nonetheless, as there aren't enough positive developments in research about Alzheimer's disease and how to combat it, I definitely wanted to bring it to you. So again, it was Salk Institute scientists. They found preliminary evidence that tetrahydrocannabinol, yes, that's THC, and other compounds found in marijuana can promote the cellular removal of beta amyloid, a toxic protein associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now, does that mean they're going to say that Alzheimer's patients should smoke marijuana and that will help get rid of amyloid plaque? No, absolutely not. Um, as we'll talk about after this break when we go over the rest of this research, that would not be the mechanism by which the THC would help get rid of the amyloid plaque. And uh, we'll go into that after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, 
and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you information on how researchers have found an interesting way to get rid of amyloid plaque, the toxic protein that accumulates in the brain cells of patients with Alzheimer's disease, like I was telling you right before the break, turns out that THC, the main ingredient in marijuana, and other compounds found in marijuana may be useful in combating amyloid plaque. But before you think that Alzheimer's patients should all smoke weed, let's see what, in fact, they found. These exploratory studies were conducted in brain cells grown in the laboratory, uh, which, you know, for one thing, that's a long way from seeing how this would work in a living, breathing patient. But they might offer insight into the role of inflammation in Alzheimer's disease and could provide clues to developing novel therapeutics for the disorder. Scientists have known for a long time that inflammation plays a major role in developing Alzheimer's disease. Uh, early research found a correlation between less incidence of the disease in people who took a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, like Advil and Motrin, for example. And more recent research has shown that the inflammation may be in response to certain infectious agents. 
But although other studies have offered evidence that cannabinoids might be neuroprotective against the symptoms of Alzheimer's, these Salk Institute researchers believe their study is the first one to demonstrate that cannabinoids affect both inflammation and amyloid beta protein accumulation in brain cells. Alzheimer's disease is a progressive brain disorder that leads to memory loss and can seriously impair a person's ability to carry out daily tasks. It affects more than 5 million Americans, according to the National Institutes of Health, and is a leading cause of death. It is also the most common cause of dementia, and its incidence is expected to triple during the next 50 years. It has long been known that amyloid beta accumulates within the brain cells of the aging brain well before the appearance of Alzheimer's disease symptoms and the characteristic plaques that you can see as a result of the accumulation of amyloid beta protein. The amyloid beta is a major component of the plaque deposits that are a hallmark of the disease. But as I said before, the precise role of amyloid beta and the plaques it forms in the disease process remains unclear. In a manuscript published in the June 2016's issue of Aging and Mechanisms of Disease, the Salk Institute team studied nerve cells altered to produce high levels of amyloid beta to mimic aspects of Alzheimer's disease. Again, to remind you, they're working with brain cells grown in culture. Uh, this is not something that you can study yet in a living, breathing patient. <clears throat> the researchers found that high levels of amyloid beta were associated with cellular inflammation and higher rates of brain cell death. This is the interesting part. They demonstrated that exposing the cells to THC, again, that's the main ingredient marijuana, reduced amyloid beta protein levels and eliminated the inflammatory response from the nerve cells caused by the protein, thereby allowing the nerve cells to survive. A very exciting development if it could be shown that by blocking the effects of amyloid beta on nerve cells, you could then reduce the effect of Alzheimer's disease, uh, which again makes intuitive sense, but we don't know for a fact that that's what would happen. Inflammation within the brain, as we talked about before, is a major component of the damage associated with Alzheimer's disease, but it has always been assumed that this response was coming from immune-like cells in the brain, not the nerve cells themselves. When they were able to identify the molecular basis of the inflammatory response to the amyloid beta protein, it became clear that THC-like compounds that nerve cells make themselves 
may be involved in protecting the cells from dying. Brain cells have switches known as receptors that can be activated by endocannabinoids. That's right, the brain has its own cannabinoids, a class of lipid molecules made by the body that are used for intercellular signaling in the brain. The psychoactive effects of marijuana are caused by THC, which is a molecule similar in activity to endocannabinoids that can activate the same receptors. Physical activity results in the production of endocannabinoids, and some studies have shown that exercise may therefore slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. The research team's findings were conducted in exploratory laboratory models, and the use of THC-like compounds as a therapy would need to be tested in clinical trials. In separate but related research, same, the same laboratory found an Alzheimer's drug candidate that also removes amyloid beta from nerve cells and reduces the inflammatory response in both nerve cells and the brain in general. It was the study of that chemical that led the scientists to discover that endocannabinoids are involved in the removal of amyloid beta and the reduction of inflammation. Well, so the bottom line is this study may give us important clues, but we're still a good ways away from being able to combat the effects of amyloid beta on brain cells and furthermore to see if that would alleviate symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. More than likely, uh, the reality is that by the time amyloid beta is being produced in excess, it's already too late. And uh, the only thing that would be helpful would be to prevent the overproduction of amyloid beta in the first place. Um, <clears throat> it could very well be that uh, even if memory hasn't deteriorated to a severe degree, by the time the amyloid plaques are there, uh, that is already evidence that the damage is irreversible and uh, the patient will inexorably progress through uh, more severe stages of Alzheimer's disease, eventually losing their life to it. Well, next on Psychiatry Today, we're going to shift gears and we're going to go from senescence or the end of life to uh, a much younger age group, teens. And uh, we have a paper from the University of Texas at Austin that <clears throat> gives lessons on personalities to teens to help them cope with social stressors. Uh, teens are subject to so much social pressure, and this is causing so much stress for them. So this would be something very helpful. Teaching teens that social and personality traits can change helps them cope with social challenges, such as bullying, which can in turn help them mitigate stress and improve academic performance. The transition from middle to high school is a difficult time. Psychologically, teens are more focused on status and relationships. Biologically, they're more reactive to stress than other age groups. That combination leads the teens to believe they don't have the resources to cope with social difficulties in school 
This makes them more vulnerable to experiencing depression. Adolescents are very focused on peer social hierarchy and status. And when they transition to high school, they're in a situation where they have to figure out where they stand. Now, the study appears in the journal Psychological Science. It teaches students that socially relevant traits are malleable, not fixed. And this can make them feel better equipped to face social challenges rather than viewing them as threats and seeing them as lasting realities. Through two double-blind studies, researchers monitor teens' physiological responses to stress to evaluate how these lessons could improve cognitive, physiological, and behavioral responses to stress, as well as academic performance. They monitored cardiovascular responses in 60 teens, ages 14 to 17, had them prepare a short speech on what makes people popular, and then had them do some mental math problems. Beforehand, half the teens were exposed to the idea that people and their socially relevant traits could change. They reported feeling less threatened by the task, had higher cardiac efficiency, lower levels of cortisol, a stress hormone, and performed better on speeches and math problems. When they felt, when teens felt threatened, their stress reaction was to prepare for a social defeat, reduce cardiac efficiency, and increase cortisol production. But those who felt more confident that the task wasn't going to make or break them were better biologically prepared for the challenge. And the second study tracked 205 ninth graders through the school year. Half received lessons on the idea that people can change. Students completed daily diaries, monitoring stressful things, talked about how they could deal with these stressors, and provided saliva samples to measure stress hormones. The teens that were exposed to people that the idea that people could change were able to cope better on days that they reported stressors and their GPAs were better. Now, the authors point out the psychological interventions aren't magic, but it's a progressive step forward in the research of addressing the wider public health issue of teenage stress, giving them the message that social traits can change and they're, they're not fixed. Um, and this can, again, reduce depressive symptoms and improve academic performance, showing uh, better cardiovascular efficiency as well. And with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. And thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.